Well, it's one of the things about uh, preaching expositorily through the Bible that you hit stories like this one, which are not particularly comfortable, not particularly fun, not particularly nice to talk about, but they're there. And uh, Joshua 7 kind of sits in the middle of this book as a pretty jarring contrast with a lot of the rest of what happens in Joshua. The story so far has been very optimistic. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you know that Joshua is the story of conquest. It's the story of victory. It's the story of the Israelites going forth. They've crossed the Jordan. They've entered Canaan. They've taken Jericho almost effortlessly. Uh, and you can imagine within the camp of Israel, there is just this, this buzz. There is just this adrenaline now pumping through them that uh, leads them to think they can do pretty much anything. They've taken this city. They've crossed this river. They've entered this land. There is nothing that they cannot do. And you get to Joshua 7, and just as you're expecting the thing to, to sort of keep moving towards the great crescendo of conquest, it all grinds to a halt. It all comes crashing down. And you get a taste of this back in Joshua 6. Uh, just before the Israelites entered Jericho, God said to them, Now, when you go into the city... You must not take for yourselves any of the devoted things, the harem, the devoted things. These were the treasures of Jericho. These were the gold, the silver, the, the, the bronze, the, 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 the gems, the artifacts, the treasures of the city. God says, I want you to take those things and put them straight into my treasury, the treasury of the Lord. Don't take any of that stuff for yourself. And it seems like what's happened is that in the heat of battle, this guy Achan sees the treasury in Jericho. He sees all of these things, the gold, the, the silver coins and so on. And one uh, garment, one item in particular grabs his attention. It's this robe from Babylonia. And uh, he's pretty enamored with this robe. I mean, Babylonian stuff was very uh, chic. It was very fashionable. Babylon or Babylonia was like the center of really the civilized world back then. It was the New York, the Paris uh, of the ancient world. Anything from Babylonia was cool. It was fashionable. And, and Achan sees this robe and he desperately desires it. And he figures, I guess, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to see, nobody's going to care if I just take a few things for myself, if I just stash this robe somewhere uh, on my own. You have to wonder what he thought he was going to do and how he thought he was going to wear it. I mean, it looked a little bit funny walking around Israel in this Babylonian robe. You know, everyone's like, I don't think they sold those in the desert. But I don't think he was thinking straight. He just takes it and he hides it literally in a hole in the ground in his tent, thinking that that's it and that's as far as it went. But there is an intriguing verse at the beginning of this chapter. And if you've got a Bible, look at the opening verse of Joshua 7, it says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. In the very next sentence, it goes on to, to narrow that down to one particular Israelite, Achan, who has stolen this and that. But uh, you notice the chapter doesn't start by saying Achan was unfaithful. It begins by saying the Israelites were unfaithful. And I think there's something profound in here about what sin is and what sin actually does. 
And, and, and to grasp this, you need to step back a little bit from this particular story. The Bible sets forth a picture of a world filled with harmonious human relationships, a world that's characterized, the Hebrew prophets describe it as a world of shalom, a world of peace. We translate it peace, but it means more than peace. It means uh, universal flourishing and wholeness and delight, as one commentator put it. This is a world where shalom reigns. And central to the idea of shalom is the idea that everything is connected. Everyone is connected. And what you do and what I do never affects just us. Even when we think it does, even when we think no one's looking, it never affects just us. Because we are connected in a whole series of relationships. You know, as Westerners, we think in very individual terms. We think of ourselves as autonomous moral agents, that what I do is just, just me. I stand and fall on my own actions. But this is not the picture that the Bible presents us with. The Bible sees us as persons in community. That we are defined by the relationships we have. So that I'm not just Reuben, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm soon to be a father. Had to slip that one in. Uh, I'm a, a pastor and a, and, a, and a member of this community. Whatever it is, you know, we, we understand ourselves and know ourselves within the context of a whole matrix of relationships. And the Bible presents us with a picture of these relationships as God intended them to be, characterized by mutual trust and respect and intimacy and dignity. And it's in that context that we can think about what sin is. Best definition I've heard of sin comes from Neil Plattinger. He says, sin is culpable shalom breaking. And that, I think, rescues sin from being just something that you do that affects you and God, like it just you break a command and it disrupts your relationship with God. But we usually think about that in just a vertical sense. But that is not the picture of the Scriptures. If everything is connected, if the world is a place that is intended to be characterized by shalom, then what I do when I act selfishly, when I act for my own benefit and not the benefit of others, it never just affects me. It is a disturbance of shalom. It is a vandalism of God's good created intent, and it always has implications. It always ripples out. This is how it was with the very first sin. You think about Genesis 3 with the fall. Adam and Eve eat, the, eat from the tree God told them not to eat from. It's not something that only affects them and their personal relationship with God. Immediately, their intimacy between the two of them is affected. They have children and the cycle of violence is perpetuated. Their children have children and by the time you get to Genesis 6, the entire web of humanity is caught in this rebellion and this rejection and this resistance of the God who created them. Human relationships break down at a family level, at a, at a social, group, cultural, eventually a national level. It keeps on rippling out. This is what happens when people turn to themselves rather than to God. It never just affects one person. It always ripples, and it always corrupts and contaminates and violates shalom, the whole state of affairs that God intends this world to be like. And so it's in that context that you can come back and have a look at 
Joshua 7 and what's going on with Achan's sin, it helps us to have a frame of reference for understanding why the author says the Israelites are unfaithful. Not just Achan is unfaithful, because the uncomfortable conclusion that we're being pushed towards is that in some sense, Achan's sin, this one action of one individual, in some sense, it rests on the whole community. It's not very comfortable for us because, again, we think, hang on, you know, we're, we're individualists by conditioning. We're Westerners. We think and act individual terms. But the scriptures suggest that your stuff, my stuff, how we think, act, and relate to one another, in some sense, we all bear the weight of it. In some sense, it rests upon all of us. And if that's disturbing in regard to Akinson, translate it into this. Translate it into this environment, church community, church family. There is a sense, and I don't fully understand how this works, but there is a sense in which when you and I just turn to our own ways, we just persist in our lifestyles and patterns of thinking, acting, speaking that are apart from God, there is a sense in which the weight of that is carried by every person in this community. It's not just between you and God. When one part of the body is sick, the whole body is sick. When one part of the body has cancer, we don't say, well, that part is sick. We say that person is sick. The whole body feels the effects and feels the force of one person's actions that are just postured towards themselves rather than toward God. And this has consequences for the life of a community. It had consequences for the Israelites. The next day they go out to take the next city, Ai. It's smaller than Jericho. It should be an easier victory than Jericho. They don't even need as many soldiers, but they go out and they get decimated. 36 of them lose their lives. And you, and you have to wonder for those guys that got struck down in battle that day as they took their last breaths, whether they wondered what has gone wrong. After Jericho was such a success, what has happened? None of those guys that got killed at AI had done anything wrong. None of those guys took the artifacts. None of those guys took the Babylonian robe, and yet they died because of what Achan had done. The whole community is feeling the consequences of Achan's sin. You can think about ways in which this practically happens. Think about contexts where you have a person who is uh, just a, a natural pessimist. Always the glass half empty kind of person. And, and maybe you've had this in a, in a work situation or in some kind of context where you're trying to get ideas going, you're trying to get creative energy going, and you can have one person who is negative, one person who is just slamming every idea, one person who's telling the rest of the group why it can't possibly happen. And that stuff is infectious, right? You have a negative, it can just kill the energy in the room when everyone's trying to just move forward and figure out how can we, and you have one person saying, oh, there's no way we can. That, that stuff can be contagious it rubs off on others same thing if you have in a church context you have a negative person you have someone that is just bitter and critical and everything's wrong i don't like this i don't like the music i don't like the preaching i like the way they do life groups i don't like this person that person annoys me you know you, you know maybe you are this person maybe you know this person i, I don't know but, but you know that they're, they're, they're there right there are these people and, and what happens is, you know, it starts with one, but then they talk to someone. And, and, and over a casual coffee, they spew it all out, and then now you've got two negative people. 
And then they feed on each other. And soon you've got a whole life group or you've got a whole family or you've got a whole little social network that is just nothing is good about this church. Everything's bad. And, you know, this is not just a church thing. Any community group, any group of people, corporate group, whatever, can experience this. It's just, it, it is just toxic. And then it becomes divisive. You've got a whole faction of people over here that are unhappy where, where it starts with just one person choosing to be negative, choosing to be bitter, choosing to be you know, frustrated. And, and rather than working through the channels and trying to be constructive, they just talk, 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 talk. And soon you've got a whole church that's just out of sync with each other and negative. This is how it can be. This is part of how the actions, the thinking, the behavior of a member of the community can start to spill over to the whole group. And there's an even deeper level to this that, that I don't fully understand, but I think it's there in the text. When you look at Achan's sin, this was a hidden sin. This was some, Maybe his family knew about it, but not many other people did, if, if anybody. And yet, the entire community suffers. The entire community, it's like God's blessing just stops. And there is a sense, I think, and I don't find this very comfortable and I don't even like this idea, but I think biblically we could say that there's a sense in which the actions of one person can somehow, in ways we don't fully understand, can somehow affect God's blessing into the whole community. This is kind of scary to think about, but it's as if with Achan's sin, God just turns off the tap of his blessing and his victorious, empowering presence. Or another way of thinking about it is uh, Joshua pictures this heavenly army sort of fighting alongside Israel, winning battles for them, this great multitude of, of heavenly warriors, if you like, going ahead of Israel, unseen. And at the point that Achan does what he does, it's as if God just gives the word and the heavenly army pulls back, leaving just these fledgling few Israelites out there trying to win the battle. They don't even know what's happened until they hit the next battle. And then they find out it's just us. All of our defenses have gone. All of our heavenly protection has gone. I think this, uncomfortable as it may sound, this can happen in a community where God may just stem the flow of his blessing. If there are things within that community. Now, I know you say, well, hang on, but I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this thing over here, and I don't want that to affect everybody. You know, I've got this battle going on. I've got this addiction. I've got this pattern. But I, I don't mean for this to affect the whole church. Listen, this is not about uh, a person who is, who is genuinely working against sin in their life. God's looking at the heart. Where he sees a person's heart is soft, and they genuinely hate sin no matter how much they give in to it. And they genuinely strive against it in the power of his spirit, God is endlessly gracious with that person, endlessly benevolent in, in, in helping that person work through. But where you have someone whose heart is just hardened and who is just stubbornly, persistently, deliberately, willfully, intentionally just indifferent towards glaring issues in their life. They just don't, you don't, you don't even care about it. You just got this thing, this whatever it is, a lifestyle, some way of thinking, speaking, acting that is just utterly wrong, but you don't even care. You, you know full well what it is, how serious it is, but you just don't, I don't even care. That's just who I am. That person, I think, places 
the whole community in a dangerous position. In those situations, I think it is possible, and always happen, but it is possible for God to, for a time, just maybe withdraw his hand until that issue is dealt with. I know this isn't fun to think about. I know you're glad you came this morning for this kind of message. But, you know, this is, it gives us a glimpse, I think, into the way sin is a community issue. It's never just an individual. Even that, the hidden thing that you're working on, and you know, it always, in some ways we understand, in some ways we just don't. It is always a community issue. It's always, in some sense, shared by the community. And in many cases, it affects the community. This is, I think, ultimately the logic behind, when you get to the New Testament, the idea of church discipline, which, again, is not a fun subject to talk about. But you know, people can look at that, the idea of asking a person to leave a church and just think, that is, that is vindictive, that is just punishment, that is awful, that's not loving, that's not gracious. But when you understand the idea of shalom, that everything is connected, and sin is a disturbance of that shalom, it's a, it's a breaking of that shalom, and it has implications and consequences for the whole community, then you start to see how, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with this idea in the context of rampant sexual immorality, and saying, you know, there, there is this person in the community who needs to be asked to leave. Because the metaphor Paul uses is a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Or one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. You know, this is, this is the idea. You can have a situation where for the sake of the rest of the community, one person needs to be asked to leave. And again, it's a person who has a stubborn, sinful, resistant heart. It's a last resort ever having to ask a person to leave a church. And it should always be done with a heavy, heavy heart and tears and always be restorative with a view to bringing that person back and reforming that person. But if you absorb this idea that God may even stem the flow of his blessing into a community where there is this kind of stuff going on, you can see how it sometimes may become necessary where you have someone that just is not interested. And you're not, I'm not talking about a person who may be you know, seeking after God just in those early stages. This is someone who knows full well. This is someone who is part of, absorbed into the community, and yet is just not interested in moving towards Christ with the rest of their brothers and sisters. This is the logic behind how a community may even get to the point of having to ask a person to leave. And, and this is kind of what you see in the end result of Achan's sin. This is why it's so hard to deal with. God weeds out this one guy and his family, and you have the scene in Joshua 7 where Achan and his whole family are put to death by the Israelites. That is not a part of the Bible any of us want to spend any more time in than we have to. But I want to argue that we need to allow ourselves to look at that ugly incident Disturbing as it might be, because it's one of the few places where you get a glimpse of the seriousness of sin. You know, we play with sin, we toy with it, we're blasé about it, we don't really care. And you see the fate of Achan, and horrific as it is, it hammers home to us the reality that sin is utterly reprehensible to God. 
it is it is just repugnant to him. It is something that is so filthy and detestable in his sight. It's not just something he doesn't like or doesn't really want much to do with. It is treason. It is an affront to a holy God. And I know this makes us squirm, but the idea is that this story doesn't lead us to self-pity. It doesn't lead us to despair. It doesn't lead us to condemnation and shame. It leads us to the cross. That's where Joshua 7 should lead us. It should lead us to fall down on our faces at the foot of the cross and say, thank you, God, that you found a solution to that. Until you grasp the seriousness and the horror of sin, you're never going to grasp the beauty of grace. You're always going to have a shallow view of what Jesus has done if you have a shallow view of what it was supposed to solve, the problem that it was supposed to deal with. But when we allow ourselves for a moment just to feel the weight of what sin is in the eyes of a holy God, and just what it is that we deserve in his eyes, that we, we should all have stood in Achan's place. We all deserve to be taken to that valley and suffer the same death that he suffered. Our sin, the stuff in my life, my junk, your junk, it is no better than what Achan did. It might not be stealing a Babylonian robe, but we're all here and we all got stuff, right? You brought stuff through the doors this morning. I brought stuff. We got, we're fighting against things. We've got that stubborn streak, that lazy streak, that critical streak, that judgmental streak. You know, we've, we, we, we're, we're battling against all of that stuff. And I think the thrust of this story on the other side of the cross is to allow it to lead us to Jesus and allow us to see that Jesus became Achan in our place, that he stood in that place. He wasn't stoned to death, but he hung on that cross in our stead. Isaiah says he was punished for our transgressions. He was wounded for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. He became Achan because even though you and I deserved it, even though we should have gone exactly the same way, we've been free. Those of us united to Christ, we've been free from the consequences of our own stuff, our own junk, our own sin. We've been set free from it. We've been given life. We've been given freedom. And that should make us unbelievably grateful. And now standing on the other side of the cross, we're left with this twin reality that God has forgiven us, that God has freed us, that he's brought us out of that, that we no longer have to face the consequences of our sin as Achan did, that we, we've been able to be spared from that. Our past has been forgiven. Our future is redeemed. Our, 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 our present makes sense but we're also still left with the reality that God is hes no more favorable towards sin today than he was in Achan's day. It's not like when Jesus came, God suddenly said, well, sin doesn't matter. It's, no, it, it, it's not a big thing in my eyes anymore. It's just that he has dealt with it through Christ. But sin is still just as much of, of an absolute affront to God as it ever was. And God still desires that as forgiven people who have received the grace of God, we still live with a consciousness of how serious sin is and a genuine desire out of the grace of God to put to death sin in our lives. To take hold of the things that are not as they should be in our lives and work in the power of God's Spirit to put an end to those things. Because most of us, having absorbed 
God's grace, having been forgiven and free, we just kind of drift and maybe we try and improve this or we try and improve that. For the most part, though, we're just, well, this is just who I am and, yeah, I get this issue over here, but we don't deal decisively with sin. And Scripture commands us as grace-filled Christians. It said God's grace compels us towards holiness. It compels us to crucify the flesh with its sinful desires, to put to death anything that's contaminating body, spirit, mind, the things that other people see and the things that other people don't see. And sometimes it's not until a moment like this, maybe God just places on your heart, you know, there's an issue in your life that I need you to deal with. I need you to put a stake in the ground. You've been playing with it for too long. You've been messing around with it. You've become lax. You've become blasé. Yes, I've forgiven you completely for it. And you stand in freedom and in grace. But now I'm asking you to outwork that by putting this sin to death in your life. Some of you need to hear that message this morning. For some of you, the Spirit is like shining a huge searchlight into your heart even now and bringing to the surface things that are not as they should be. Ways that we think, maybe ways that we think towards other people. Things that we say, maybe words that are unkind and demeaning. Things that we see, maybe our television viewing, our movie watching. We so rarely take account of these things. We just get on, we just do stuff. The ways that we behave, patterns of living in our lives. It is a healthy discipline to come regularly before God and ask Him to show us the things that need to change. To show us the things that are not as they should be. And it's not an overnight fix. It's going to take time. It's going to take relationships that are designed to help you grow. But we battle against this stuff with the realization that one day the day will come when shalom will reign. And we will no longer fight against sin because sin will be eradicated. It will be done away with. And finally, God's original created intent for humanity will take shape. Human relationships will be characterized by trust, intimacy and dignity and respect. Let me finish this morning with a description of what that world might look like. I think this is part of having our imaginations captured by where history is heading so that we work towards that in the present by dealing with this stuff in our lives. Here is a description of a world filled with God's shalom. It's by John Ortberg. He says, In a world where shalom prevailed, all marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. Their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. Wives who give birth to their husbands' children. And men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. <laughs> Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs, like delivering pizza, which would be low-fat and uh, non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. Schools would no longer need police presence or even hall monitors. Students and teachers and janitors would honor and value one another's work. At recess, every kid would get picked for a team. Churches would never split. 
People would neither be bored nor hurried. No father would ever again say, I'm too busy, to a disappointed child. Our national sleep deficit would be paid off. Starbucks would still exist, but would only sell decaf. (laughs) Divorce courts and battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centres. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would be honoured. They would honour and be enriched by their differences and be united in their common humanity. And in the centre of the entire community would be its magnificent architect and most glorious resident, the God whose presence fills each person with unceasing splendour and ever-increasing delight. It's a pretty gripping picture, and it gives us something in our minds. I mean, this is the future. This is the, the world that God is actually one day going to bring about. And all of our agonizing and often frustrating and often unsuccessful attempts at dealing with stuff in our life right now are in anticipation of that day when it's not going to be a battle anymore and it's not going to be a frustration and you're not going to feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall and taking two steps forward and three steps backward. One day, shalom will rule and God will reign and be all in all. And until that day, we work against sin and we seek to put it to death in our lives and we realize its impact on our community. But we do that out of grace and we don't do it. And please hear my heart on this. We don't do it out of any condemnation. We don't do it out of a sense of shame or guilt or obligation. That's never going to get you anywhere. We do it as freed men and women, set free through the cross and the empty tomb, who are now outworking that in our lives out of gratitude for what God has already done for us and seeking to put it into effect by pursuing honesty and diligence and uprightness and integrity in our lives. And so I want to lead us through a couple of minutes as we get ready for communion, just a time of confession, a time when we can as individuals and as a church just move through a process of bringing, allowing God to bring up to the surface things that may be in our lives right now that need a change. And they may be things that we're not even aware of. Part of this is saying, God, bring it to my mind, lay it on my heart, and then deciding to act, deciding this is going to be a new day. This is going to be a turning point in my life. So let's just open up before God and spend a couple of minutes in confession as we move into communion. Father, we just come to you. and God, our desire is for holiness. God, we're so sick of sin in our lives. We're so sick of being people that are enslaved and entangled by all kinds of things that are just not worthy of your glory. And God, I ask now that you would just move among us and bring things to our hearts and our minds, particular, specific things that you are prompting us to act on. Father, even now, just lay it on our conscience, lay it on our heart, lay it on our mind, Lord, things that we have just been too blasé about, that we have not taken seriously, that we have not really recognized and dealt with. Father, where we have become lax in dealing with sin, Father, just bring it right across the front of our minds now, we pray. And God, even as those things, we're becoming aware of them, we confess them to you. We say sorry to you, Lord. We agree with you that these things are wrong. Lord, we see them from your perspective, not from our own, just trying to compare ourselves with each other. Lord, we see them from your perspective of absolute holiness and righteousness. And we agree with you, Lord 
that these things are wrong and they should not be a part of our lives. God, we lay them down and we just confess, Father. We repent of those things now. Lord, we are sorry. And God, we, we ask again for your forgiveness, knowing that you've already forgiven us at the cross. We ask that you would come and cleanse us from those things. God, we don't want to be left in guilt and shame. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and forgive us and free us from these things. Lord, through just the, the, the wonderful work of your Spirit in our lives, come and cleanse us. Come and renew us. Come and take those things away from us, we pray. Lord, restore our relationship with you that maybe has been fractured by this stuff and grown so distant and cold because of this stuff getting in the way. God, we ask for your renewing. We ask for the purifying work of your Spirit. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that is so available to us through Jesus. We thank you that your grace just abounds and abounds and abounds, and we just ask you to pour it again into our hearts. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, we bask in your forgiveness, and we acknowledge we have nothing. We bring nothing. All we have is your grace. We ask you to have mercy on us, God. And now, Father, restore us, we pray. Out of this brokenness and out of this contrite heart, would you renew faith in us? Would you renew a new spirit, a new heart, a new determination to act on those things in our lives that are just entangling us and keeping us from the people that you want us to be and we want us to be? God, create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. Let us be a people, a community that seeks your face, that is single-minded towards you. We renew this morning in your spirit's power our resolve to crucify sin in our lives, put it to death, eradicate it, uproot it from our lives. Our hearts are set on holiness. Our hearts are set on purity. Come and make it that way within us, we pray. Show us, Lord, how we can start this journey if we haven't yet. Show us the next steps. Show us how to make a plan. Show us how to put this into practice. Show us how to live this out in our lives. God, keep this hunger for righteousness burning in our hearts. Keep this hunger for holiness alive within us. Holy Spirit, we are in your hands. And we're so dependent on you. We ask for your power to fill us afresh to pursue the lives that you want us to lead, not the ones we want to lead, the life you have for us. Father, we're broken before you this morning and our lives are poured out and we're asking you to come and search our hearts and renew our minds again. In Jesus' name.